If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the History Extra podcast. Fascinating historical conversations from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Revealed. The history of magic books, or grimoires, stretches from the ancient world to the present day. But what are the earliest forms of written magic? How do the stories of magic and religion intersect? And how will its continued presence in popular culture influence events yet to come? From the use of papyrus to the effects of witch talk, Professor Owen Davis takes Lauren Good on a global journey through these tomes past. Hi, Owen. Thank you so much for joining me on the History Extra podcast today to talk all about your new book, Art of the Grimoire, an illustrated history of magic books and spells. Let's start with a foundational question to all of this. Where does the word magic actually come from? Well, it goes back into deep ancient history. And it kind of derives from the term the magoi. This all comes from the ways in which the ancient Greeks viewed non-Greeks in the ancient world, the term kind of derives from, in a sense, the, the religion of others, that the Magoi or the, the Magi, which obviously becomes the Magi in the Bible, are essentially these overseas non-Greeks. Their religion is, in a sense, described as magic, the magic of the Magi. So it, it, it goes right back to there, and it illustrates right from the beginning one of the things, challenges of defining magic itself, because throughout history, magic is always kind of the religion of the other in many cases. So, you know, whether it's Catholics and Protestants <laughs> during the Reformation or going back into the ancient world, you know, or Christians and pagans, magic is always often seen as this thing of the other. 
And it's really interesting that you've just said that about this otherness, because I was personally really surprised to read in your book that in medieval Europe, the performance of ritual magic was sometimes within the framework of the seven liberal arts that underpinned education at the time. Could you please elaborate a bit more on this? Yeah, it's a big debate. People probably don't realise. They might, they might think that magic was all forbidden. But there was a big debate between some of the well-known theologians of the time because magic is essentially, in a learned way, is being mostly practiced by the clergy because they're the ones who can read. You know, there's them and the, you know, the elite uh, aristocracy are the only ones who can really read at this period. So the debate is very much between theologians. Um, and some clergy are and are using various what we call magical techniques through ritual invocations and through powers of concentration and things like this and, and, and the use of images. And they're saying, well, we're doing this because we're trying to either get kind of spiritual wonders or we're trying to contact the angels because we want to know more about God's secrets in a divine way. So there are those who are arguing that all this is legitimate and a part of, you know, cross between philosophy and religion and everything else because it's about, it's about getting to know God's world more. But of course, there are, there are the critics who are basically saying, ah, yes, but you think you might be. Uh, getting in touch with the angels but in fact it's the devil who's always stepping and therefore if you're going to practice this magic um or these techniques which is outside the the, the catholic liturgy or the orthodox liturgy in, in the east then you're essentially blaspheming um because you are allowing entry to, to devils and demons so this is the debate and, and that's what slowly but surely goes more and more the way of those who are critical of this this learned magic and We've just talked about medieval Europe, but as you mentioned at the start, the history of magic stretches far beyond this. What are the earliest forms of written magic that we do have? As soon as people are starting to write things down, and this is obviously goes back, you know, we're talking about 5,000 years ago in Mesopotamia and the development of this, well, writing is a technology. And so, the, you know, the first technology of writing is, is done in cuneiform, these sort of marks which are sort of prodded into clay tablets very precisely, very neatly with, with probably a stick or a stylus or some sort of stylus. So cuneiform is the first form of writing and, and straight away magic is being recorded on these tablets. I mean the vast majority, thousands of these clay tablets survive which is amazing and a lot of it is just administrative which is fascinating in, in its own right you know but you also get lots of social detail and cultural detail in these cuneiform tablets and so one of those elements of cultural or, or religious information is uh, information about spells and magic and sometimes on the cuneiform it's actually recording magic and how to do it or it might be telling you in these cuneiform what sort of stones or precious stones um, have magical properties and we even have cuneiform tablets which are about communicating with those sort of priests or priest magicians who who perform magic so it's about communications can you do this for me you know uh, i've got this problem that needs needs sorting so straight away all these aspects of what they call popular magic as well as the learn we were just been talking about learning magic just a moment ago you know this is about people who can read and and here you know people are, are scribes are kind of writing these on behalf of people who can't read as well so we're getting much much closer to the kind of magic of the people and what sort of spells were people writing in these examples? It's mostly about demons, different types of demons. Obviously, you've got the gods, and so you might be calling upon the gods and goddesses. So there's one part of it is this is why the boundary between religion and magic, again, is you know up for debate for, by scholars for, you know, for a long time. Because you, it, it might be kind of conjurations to beseech or draw upon the, the powers of good 
gods and goddesses. And the other half of it is about trying to keep demons away because you know demons and evil spirits are kind of what cause all your illnesses which make your crops go bad which which kill your cattle and things like this and so you get quite a lot of things called binding spells which are basically about keeping the spirits away from you or binding them to make sure they can't do anything this episode is brought to you by indeed we're driven by the search for better but when it comes to hiring the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all don't search match with indeed Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed ebay motors is here for the ride with over 122 million parts you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly brake kits led headlights bumpers whatever your baby needs ebay motors has it and with ebay guaranteed fit it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time every time plus at these prices you're burning rubber not cash keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com eligible items only exclusions apply and are there any common symbols that appear in these texts when people are using these incantations or spells? There's a range of symbols, but the fascinating thing early on, and, and this, this appears in, I mean, the cuneiform is just writing rather than imagery. But once we start getting hieroglyphs and hieratic, which is a sort of common form of written communication in ancient Egypt, and then into what we call Hebraic or Aramaic incantation bowls in sort of later antiquity, sometimes the symbols have meaning. Uh, can represent the sun or stars, for example, astrological significance of things. Some of the depictions are of literal depictions of demons and things like that. So you know, when you see these strange sort of slightly humanoid figures, you know, or some perhaps with a you know, chicken head or whatever on, on bowls or on papyrus or whatever, these are representations of these evil beings, uh, for example, or of gods, goddesses. But you also get a range of symbols quite early on once imagery and symbolism comes into these sorts of texts. Um, you get ones which we can't decipher, simply. And so the debate is, did they ever have meaning or were they just meant to look magical? This is the key thing. There's a whole long history of, of symbols and um, pseudoscripts which are meant to look magical for your client. They can't understand it. In fact, it's meaningless, <laughs> but it looks magical. So we've got these two kind of traditions going. One is about actual magical languages, and magical words, which might be the secret names of gods and things like this, but also this this whole pseudo language in magic. And as you discovered these examples, were there any particularly rich sources, be it a country, culture, or time period, that really helped you access these written texts? Yeah, we've got kind of a special feature in the book, which is about Coptic Coptic magic. And I think that's absolutely fascinating. There's been a big recent um, German research project looking at surviving Coptic scripts. Because the Cop Coptic magic is really interesting, because obviously it's on that nexus of, of the early Coptic church, one of the first church, Christianity, you know, uh, in Egypt. And so you, this is the first time we really get these sort of magical texts which are blending Christian and non-Christian forms of, of magic. And so you'll get the introduction in magic texts of references to kind of biblical characters, for example, you know, but it's actually in a magical context. It's also really important, the Coptic period. We're talking about, we're talking about largely 500 AD to 800 AD, that sort of period here. 
And the other thing that's happening here is, is the shift from papyrus to paper uh, for, in terms of parchment. Not paper as in wood pulp, but paper as in parchment paper uh, made from animal skins. So we've got a technological, fundamental technological shift, you know, which into the medieval period, that parchment is the writing surface, and papyrus dies away. And so we, in this Coptic period, we've got both of this going on. We've got, we've got magical texts on papyrus, magical texts on parchment, and comparing those two in different ways in which perhaps the new writing service enabled new sorts of innovations in terms of use of coloured inks and things like that as well, in different ways. I mean, you can use coloured inks on papyrus, of course, but it's interesting to try and unpick how the technology influences the magic and vice versa. And this idea of technology influencing magic is so interesting. As we move into later history, how did the invention of things like the printing press affect the circulation and reception of magic books? Yeah, I've, lo- I've thought long and hard on this one. I've written about it before in an old other book on, on grimoires, and I've kind of developed further in this one. And it's you know the printing press is fascinating because the it's a revol- it is a revolution, but we've had these other revolutions before. You know, in a sense, parchment is a revolution. The making of paper itself out of rag, which which happens in China first. You know, Chinese essentially invented paper when using it far before, and that enabled some amazing sort of wood block, what we call wood block printing, very intricately carved pieces of wood. So in China, by the eleventh century, we've got these fabulous detailed uh, what are called duranis, which are kind of these magical prayer sorts of talismans being produced in their thousands because it's just easy to do it so the chinese are there and and, and the early muslim arabic tash printing which is saying was really quite intricate before things were the printing presses invented so there's a whole history of print and magic before gutenberg and printing press arrives in europe uh you know the 15th century but obviously the printing press is another revolution because it, it just again movable type is the key thing here and so you know not just images here, but text and how it can be reduced in a mass form. But what does that do to magic when you print it? And so there are some early print magic books and there's things called natural magic and whole compendia of natural magic, the secret properties of, of, of plants and stones and animals, which get printed from, mostly from ancient texts by the likes of Pliny and things. But there's the fact that it's mass-produced mean it's any less magical? And that's something we're grappling with today with the internet and magic as well. You know, does it, does it reduce it? Well, you know, one thing is print enables the greater dissemination of magical texts at a time when increasing literacy, particularly in Protestant countries through the 16th, 17th centuries, means that there is a trickle down of kind of learned magic. So, you you know, there's more and more people can get access to what was only the preserve of the clergy in the medieval period. So it's what we call kind of a democratization of magic takes place because of the printing press. But one of the things that's lesser known is the degree to which people are practicing magic direct from a printed text, or that the magic in part is the copying of the information into your own manuscript. And that seems to be an important part of magical tradition, is that you create your own thing with your own illustrations as well, your own imagery. And so by the time we get to the 18th century, we have these some, some absolutely exquisite manuscript magical grimoires being produced particularly in germany with wonderful wonderful illustrations you know far more than you can do in a printed book where color is very limited so color becomes an important part of the magical manuscript tradition of this period and i think what's so interesting about this history is how it intersects with others and you've mentioned quite often throughout this interview religion how do the histories of magic and religion 
changed throughout history? Fundamentally, there was quite some similarities, but it depends on cultures. I mean, this is, I always say this, is that the relationship of magic and religion is very culture-specific. You know, and again, you know, we were saying right at the beginning, one person's religion is another person's magic, and vice versa. Another person's magic is one person's religion. And you see that interplay over and over again, different cultures around the globe. And one of the things I was kind of able to do in this book is actually start thinking and, and looking at and representing magical traditions in Asia, for example, particularly Asia and Africa, um, which have their own very rich artistic uh, manuscript and later also print versions of grimoires. But fundamentally... What we have to get over is the idea that there's a there is a fundamental division between magic and religion at any time, but at the same time as this being complex and culturally specific. By, and by that, I mean that in the late 19th century anthropologists, the early anthropologists came up with this kind of model, which is still quite strongly embedded in people's, ingrained in people's thinking, uh, which is like this kind of tripartite, so that, that, that magic came first and the very primitive uh, animistic societies which they said they could find in primitive cultures around the world in the late 19th century in the colonies so magic came first and then as society developed they developed religion organized religion and then the anthropologists in the late 19th century said we're now living in the scientific age so you can imagine this the idea is progress magic then religion then science and that's a very strong model. And you can think of you know people today who like Richard Dawkins, for example, who very much think we're in an age of science. Why are still people believing in magic? I mean, he's, he was on his hobby horse again recently. You know, I can't understand why these people are still believing in the supernatural and practicing magic. We live in an amazing age of science. Well, the point is, you go back right to the beginnings of recorded history, and you'll find the interplay of science, religion, and magic right from the beginning. So you can pull them apart in different ways but ultimately all three can coexist in a culture all three can coexist in one person's brain you can hold all three that you can be scientific and you can be religious and you can perform magic or believe in magic and that's the same today as it was with ancient mesopotamians and i'd like to stay on this idea of the history of magic interlinking with other histories just a little while longer you talked earlier about this idea of people turning to magic in times of tragedy or hardship how much of a part does the grimoire play in the history of medicine well well medicine's another one to add to the mix when we talk about religion and science and medicine if you think of medicine as part of science or a sub-part of science, then there's very close interlinking, particularly what we might call popular magic. A lot of literary and learned magic, if you think about things like what's called the Key of Solomon or whatever, these, these texts or Grimoire of Honorius or the medieval period, they're actually about kind of intellectualism. But at the same time, you get grimoires right from the beginning of written magic, you get ones which are practical. So there's a kind of intellectual, philosophical form of magic, which is about attainment of knowledge. And then there's other kind of big branch of, of, of magic, which is recorded in, in books and texts, which is about health, basically, ultimately, whether it's about your health of yours or your animals or your stock or whatever. And that is a fundamental driver of why people resort to magic, far more than the intellectual one. For most people, it's about, I want to stay well, or I'm sick and I want to be healed. How do I do that in medicine? what you might call orthodox medicine, doesn't help. It's natural in the sense that you then resort to alternative forms, as we do today. You know, people resort to all sorts of non-orthodox forms when they feel that regular medicine isn't doing any good to them. So we do get lots of content in grimoires, which is about health. And that's, again, sometimes tied with the idea that it's witches and demons who are doing it. So in other words, when we're talking about health, we're actually talking about the spirit world because it's the spirits who are causing your illness. So a lot of magic is about how you deal with spirits to make you feel better. 
But then, then there's a whole branch of, again, natural magic, which is to do with powers of herbs, for example, laws of sympathy about her, certain herbs, plants do certain things to you. You can't see it, but there's a kind of a signature in there that there's something in the plant because it looks a bit slimmer to your liver, therefore it's good for your liver. Those sorts of things are always there as well. So yeah, health medicine, fundamental part of this, but it's coming from different ways. It's coming from the idea of spiritual harm and health and, and more than what I call natural magic. And when people think of magic, there might be a connection there to witches. What effect did the witch trials in history have on the grimoire? Not much is the long and short of it. In fact, you might assume that grimoires would be full of anti-witchcraft, anti-witch spells and conjurations. But they're not. (laughs) It's really interesting. When you look at manuscript and print magic books through the 16th and 17th centuries, which are the peak of the witch trials. They do, some of the manuscript ones contain a few spells here and there. Um, so they're, they're there, but you can't really see much of a boom or, or effect. And in fact, witches are largely absent from these texts as figures. So it's fascinating because essentially what, it's, what it seems to suggest is that that whole kind of medieval tradition, which carries through and, and gets disseminated more widely through print but, and manuscript still strong and healthy as a tradition what it seems to suggest it just it kind of trundles on while while in the background you know thousands of tens of thousands of people are being executed and tried for witchcraft but just not really being represented no it's fascinating and in more modern society how has written magic manifested magic lives with times and when you get uh, it was kind of they were called called the pulp revolution in the 19th century which is when paper Technology means that you can make uh, paper cheaply out of wood pulp rather than cotton, linen rags or whatever from the past, rag paper. Wood pulp paper, which is stuff that yellows quite quickly, which you'll see uh, when you see it, which doesn't have great preservation, but it's cheap, very cheap, and can be printed on very cheaply. When wood pulp comes on, it creates a further boom and dissemination and democratisation of magic because, you know, say 1900 in America, there was a couple of, of grimoires which date back a couple of centuries and German ones, which are being printed on tens of thousands, sold for a dollar on the streets. You know, and they've got vendors on the streets uh, and, and shops and jobbers who are selling these magic books, you know, in, in the most advanced cities in the world, in, in America. So pulp itself just adds a further kind of bridge to uh, allowing people, more and more people, to access magic. So that's another technology. And then we get obviously into the 20th, 21st centuries and, and the internet. Well, at this point, you know, people can access have greater access to magical texts than ever before, and it's all free. You don't have to buy books. They're all there. There's various you know, esoteric archives online which will give you some of the mo- all those books and things which were so prized, you know, 800 years ago, clandestinely sort of, you know, carrying them from monastery to monastery or whatever. It's all on the internet. You can read it. You don't have to have any knowledge of magic. It's all there. Boom. So what does that, what does that mean? And so, yeah, again, further democratization, what people do with it, changes in a sense and how people interact with these different forms of technology and magic but one of the things i've got in the book again is about seagull generators and seagulls are these sort of uh the sense of these talismanic characters which were particularly popular in the 16th century in sort of magic books and there's been a couple of seagull generators created where you type in your thought or desire and it creates an image for you 
and you can do what you want with it after that. So, you know, technology in the service of magic, you know, that's the point we've got to. And finally, Owen, in more recent years, I think we can say that magic has entered popular culture. You've just discussed the influence of technology there. It's a common theme in films and books, and we even have things like witch talk now. What sort of effect do you think this will have on the history of magic to come? Well, it's a good it's a good question. I mean, with hindsight, we can tell what might happen in the future. Well, what the hindsight set tells you is that that relationship between technology and just carries on because there was no necessarily any dissonance between living in a scientific age of extraordinary scientific and at the same time still living in a magical age. Not everyone, of course, we, you know, significant parts of the population still do. But what, where we are at today, and with conspiracy theories and all those things, just shows you you can easily get lost in these worlds if you want to. The information is all there. If you want to immerse yourself in a world of learned magic, it's never been easier. How you do it and what that makes you feel personally, that's everyone's individual trajectory. But in a you know, sort of cultural terms, it's fascinating to look around and see how vibrant, as you say, <laughs> magic is in the world today. It just shows you, well, you know, kind of watch this space, see how it develops, because it's not going away. Professor Owen Davis, a historian specialising in the history of magic. He is the author of Art of the Grimoire, an illustrated history of magic books and spells. He also joined us recently to answer your top questions on the history of Halloween. You can find that now on the History Extra website or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening to the History Extra podcast. This podcast was produced by Sam Leal Green.